0: Well, good morning, guys. Hey, we've got guys still checking in. We've got guys getting food, but I'm going to go ahead and get started uh, so that we can hopefully end on time. Uh, Before I get started, I want to, um, I've had several guys come up. I've had several guys email me about the, um, well, first of all, I've had guys say, where was the homework? Some of you guys are morons, okay? (laughs) Okay. And I mean that with all the love of Christ I can get out of my system. If you look at the handout on your table, it's a handout, and behind it is the homework. Um, One of the guys took home the notebook and never took home the handout. Therefore, he never had the homework. So, you know, um, it is what it is. Your homework's behind your handout. Okay. The homework from last week had you read an article. I've had several guys come up to me today. I had several email me about that article uh, written by Al Moller, who's uh, a seminary professor uh, critiquing a sermon series by Andy Stanley. Uh, the purpose of that article was not to uh, slam Andy Stanley. That was not Al Mueller's point. Uh, my purpose in giving you the article was not to slam Andy Stanley. I think highly of Andy Stanley. I think he has a vibrant ministry. The purpose of the article, written by a seminary professor, older gentleman, Andy's younger, was we've got to be careful when it comes to how we handle the Scriptures. And if you read the article, the, the idea was Andy Stanley was doing a series of sermons um, about uh, basically the Scriptures, but he was downplaying, in a sense, um, the need to defend the validity of Scripture. Now, he believes in Scripture. He believes it's the Word of God. He believes it's inerrant. That's not the point. His point was, if you begin at that point with unchurched, lost people, you lose them right away. So kind of put that aside and win them first, and then you can begin to talk about the Scriptures. Al Mohler's point was, that's a slippery slope, and most of liberalism that's come into the church has, has begun at a point like that. We're going to kind of downplay this. We're going to put Scripture to the side. We're going to talk about the truths of Scripture, but we're not going to talk about where it comes from. It'd be like if I stood up today and said, uh, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Most of you guys in the room, knowing me and knowing this church, would know that that's based on Scripture. And you'd go, yeah, I know that. But if you're lost, and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you know nothing about the Bible, and I said Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, what's the basis of the authority of that statement? It's me. Well, you may look at me and go, I think you're an idiot. Um, I don't believe you. I don't think there's a Jesus, and I don't think if he, even if he existed, he has a wonderful plan for my life. I reject that based on your authority because you said it. But if I say Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and it's all based on this book, that's a different statement. And so the purpose for the article was to get you to think. And I'm glad it made some of you think. Um, I'm going to give you articles each week that are going to make you think. Don't take offense. don't, Don't read into it. I'm not trying to slam anybody. I'm just trying to get us to think about these issues Just like these men, the reformers had to think about these issues. Um, Things are happening all around us, and we need to be discerning. Uh, One of the guys asked me, well, should I even be listening to Andy Stanley? Yes, listen to Andy Stanley. But listen to Andy Stanley discerningly, just like I hope you listen to me discerningly. Uh, That you listen to Ted discerningly, that you listen and you go, wait a minute, I wonder if that really gels with this just because you respect Ted Kitchens, or maybe you respect me, don't always sit there and go, what Ken said. Go check it out. Be men of the Word. So that was the point of the article. Enough said about that. Let me pray, and we're going to get into this lesson. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. Thank you for the Word of God, that we can trust it, that we can lean on it, that it is your Word, that it is inerrant, infallible, trustworthy, and it applies to every area of my life and the life of every man in this room. And may we become men of the word. Thank you that there were men back in the 1500s who were men of the word, who went into the word, studied the word, discerned from the word, the truth of the word, and were able to stand against falsehood in their day. And I pray that that would be true of us. So this morning, as we talk, as we share, as we discuss around the tables, may you be glorified by everything that we say and do. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, here we go. Well, last year we saw, or last year, last week, we saw Martin Luther nail the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg on the church. Um, There are a lot of different paintings. You know, he changes looks every time. This one has a little boy in a little clown suit uh, doing the job for him. Uh, We don't really know how it happened, uh, what they looked like, but we do know that he, at some point, October 31st, 1517, nailed these 95 theses to the door, and it got an immediate reaction. Now, this particular painting is kind of interesting because it's got some characters in this, and I think this character right here represents this guy, Johannes Tetzel. Uh, Tetzel was a Dominican. Tetzel um, sold indulgences, and we talked about indulgences last week. Tetzel, as a Dominican, made money off of selling indulgences. They got a cut of however many indulgences they sold. So you can imagine that this guy was not really happy about the 95 Theses, because the majority of what are in the 95 Theses, if you looked at them and they're in your notebook, were about what? Indulgences. Now, again, keep in mind, Luther was not against necessarily, at this point in his life, indulgences. He was against the abuse of indulgences. He was really against the sale of indulgences for money. He was all for, and indulgence was basically a gift of merit to get people out of purgatory. He still believed in purgatory at this point in time, but he's against the fact that we're selling this. We're making money off of, it, off of it so the Catholic church can build buildings and buy artwork. So he gets hacked off about this whole thing. And what's interesting is that Tetzel is the guy, he's the primary seller of indulgences throughout the Holy Roman Empire, and which was predominantly what's now known as Germany. But he could not sell them in the area in which Luther worked and lived because the elector of that area, kind of the head dog, wouldn't allow it because he was selling indulgences. And so he didn't want competition, so he kept Tetzel out. But Tetzel's angry because it's affecting the sale of indulgences. So he writes a response. Listen, this is really important, guys, to so listen to what this guy says. He's a high-ranking member of the Catholic hierarchy. Listen to what he says. We should teach Christians that the Pope alone has the right of deciding matters of Christian faith, that he alone and no one besides him has power to interpret the meaning of scripture according to his own views and to approve or condemn all the words or writings of other men. So what's he saying? Only the Pope can interpret scripture. Only the Pope has the right to say what any writings, whether they're in Scripture or outside of Scripture, including Martin Luther and his 95 Theses, are valid. He's the sole interpreter. And one of the things we have to keep in mind is there there weren't people walking around with Bibles under their arms like we have. They didn't exist. Uh, there were Bibles, but they were in the Latin Vulgate. They were rare. Uh, the printing press had come along, but there still, still weren't copies of the Bible. As a matter of fact, I was reading this week because I can't stop reading about this topic. And this is when Luther was going to university. This is before he became a monk. And he goes into the library. Now, their library at um, Wittenberg was probably 500 books. Uh, there just weren't a whole lot of books. So he goes in the library and he says, one volume that he comes to, that, to attract his attention. He's never seen this until now. He reads the title, It's a Bible. Now, this this is a young man who grew up in the Catholic Church. He's uh, on his way to becoming a monk eventually, but he's a Christian. He goes to church, and he's discovered a Bible, a rare book, unknown in those times. His interest is greatly excited. He is filled with astonishment at finding other matters than those fragments of the Gospels and epistles that the church has selected to be read to the people during public worship every Sunday. Until this day, he had imagined that they composed the whole word of God. In other words, what he heard in his church as part of the worship was just fragments of the New Testament. But he didn't really ever hear about the Old Testament. He didn't know there was more than that. And so now he sees so many pages, so many chapters, so many books of which he had no idea this is what's going on at this point in time. And so here's Tetzel saying the only person who can interpret the Scriptures is the Pope. And then he goes on. We should teach Christians that the judgment of the Pope cannot err, not the Pope or the Pope, in matters concerning the Christian faith or which are necessary to the salvation of the human race. So again, once he's saying only the Pope can make judgments about Scripture and how you get saved. So in other words... If I or Luther go to the library and I open up this book and I start to read it and I see in Romans that there's a, such a thing as righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, I can't interpret that as meaning anything if it doesn't agree with, with, with what the Pope says. So Tetzel is basically saying, no, these 95 theses are completely wrong. He's a heretic. He's wrong. He goes on, we should teach Christians that in matters of faith, we should rely and repose more on the Pope's sentiments as made known by his decisions than on the opinions of all the learned, which are derived merely from Scripture. So this morning, what are we talking about? We're talking about Scripture. We're talking about the role of Scripture in the life of a believer and the role of Scripture as it relates to the Reformation. Things were beginning to change. The printing press came in somewhere about the mid-1400s. Uh, we're going to see the Bible starting to get translated, we're going to see it get printed, people are going to get their hands on it, they're going to start to read it, and suddenly things are going to change, and this authority of the Catholic Church is going to be undermined because people are going to start saying, well, that's not what the Bible says. And Luther's one of the ones to really start that ball rolling. Tetzel goes on, we should teach Christians that there are many things which the church regards as indisputable articles of universal truth, although they are not to be found in the canon of the Bible or in the writings of the ancient doctors. So what's he saying? There are things that the church, the Catholic church, has said are true that are not in scripture and they override scripture. This is the issue that's beginning to come to a head as Martin Luther begins this journey, so to speak, from monk to reformer, from Catholic to Protestant, protester. Um, Remember, he didn't start out to create a, a, a revolution. He didn't really start out to get rid of the Catholic church. He was a monk who loved his job. He loved what he did. He just had some questions about what was going on in his Catholic faith and in the church. Well, This is another thing that he said, Tetzel. He says, stiff-necked and thoughtless man. With 25 groats, this is what Tetzel would say to people when he's selling indulgences. With 25 groats, you can deliver your father from purgatory, and you are ungrateful enough not to save him. I declare to you, though you should have but a single coat, you ought to strip it off and sell it in order to obtain this grace. The Lord, this this blows my mind. The Lord, our God, no longer reigns. He has resigned all power to the Pope. Now, I guarantee you, you have never read that before. I had never read that before. This is a high-ranking official of the church who's basically saying God no longer reigns. The Pope does. He's in charge. He's the vicar of Christ here on earth. What he says goes. He never errs. He has authority over the Scriptures, he gets to decide what the Scriptures mean. Nobody else does. Well, that's, that's like that just like shuts it down, doesn't it? That means nobody can read this book and say, well, wait a minute. I think, I think it means this. It doesn't matter how scholarly you are. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are. If you're not the Pope, you don't get to decide that. This is all that's going on in this atmosphere in the 1500s, 1517, 1518. And that's why this battle begins between Martin Luther and the church. And it's a battle. They want him dead. They want him burned at the stake. They were already beginning to gather his books and burn his books. And he hadn't written that many yet. But he got busy fast. He got busy writing And it all started with these 95 theses that that really stirred everybody up, especially the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. So by 1518, he'd been accused of challenging papal authority. That is not something you wanted to do in that day and age. You don't challenge papal authority because, again, they're the most powerful show in town. Uh, They have a monopoly over everything. There is no Baptist. There is no... Methodist, Episcopalian, Lutheran yet. There's, n- there's no other denominations. You couldn't go down the street and go to a different church. It was the church. It was Christendom. And so he's basically saying, I don't believe the, the Pope's all, all in charge. I don't think he has all the authority. So he's given 60 days to appear in Rome before the Pope as a heretic and answer some questions. And, and what I'm going to do, guys, as we go through this, I'm not, I'm not get, get, going to tell you the whole story of Luther in one fell swoop. I'm going to kind of weave it into where we are. We're talking about Scripture. But this is part of the process that he goes through that he's told that he has to arrive in Rome and defend himself. Well, he knows the story of John Huss, and he knows the story of other people before him who had gone to Rome and who had been killed. And he's a little reticent to just pack up his bags and head to Rome because he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be put to death. So after he posts those 95 theses, there's a series of events that take place that are pretty important to, to our study. May 1518, the Heidelberg debate. Okay? There's the, back in this day and age, they loved to debate. They loved to have disputations. Um, and basically it was you would come and you would give your side and the other side would rebut. They would give their side. And it was kind of an academic pursuit. And so he's called to this Heidelberg debate and he defends the teachings of Augustine. Okay. So he goes back to Augustine. The Catholic church um, revered Augustine. And so he goes back and he uses one of their kind of respected authors and writers, thinkers, and he brings out of Augustine some things that the Catholic Church really didn't see or adhere to. One of them being that upright acts may be mortal sins in God's eyes. Now, why is that important? Because Augustine basically said, you can do the best thing you know to do, which appears to everybody around you to be an upright act. And God looks at it and goes, that's a mortal sin. That's that's worthy of damnation. Because Luther's beginning to understand there's a huge difference between You just doing something wrong, a sin, and then you just ask forgiveness for it. And what the Bible says about sin, what does the Bible say about sin? The Bible says sin is an offense against God and worthy of what? Death. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And no one does righteousness, no, not one. And all our works are as what? Filthy rags. And so Luther's beginning to read all the stuff in the Bible, and he's beginning to think, the church has kind of a strange view on sin. It's just a mistake we ask forgiveness for, and we walk away from it. And he's like, I don't think that's true. Every upright act may be a mortal sin in God's eyes. So you may be a great guy and do a lot of good things, but that doesn't win you any favor with God. He also talks about the teaching that one can be saved by good deeds was false. You can't just do good deeds. It it doesn't win you any merits with God. All our deeds are as filthy rags to God. Even your best deeds on your best day for God are not righteous because they're marred by what? Your sin nature. You, me, are inherently what? Sinful. it's, It's part of who we are. So everything we touch, everything we do is marred by sin because we're sinful. Even our righteous acts. And so he starts kind of laying this out at this disputation. And he says, There could be no cooperative effort between humans and God in salvation. Now, this was like a brick to the forehead to the Catholics because they're counting on the fact that I play a role in my salvation by doing what? Good deeds. Weren't winning favor with God through my merit, through my. Efforts, and he says, "No, there can be no cooperation." In other words, you don't bring anything to the table. Now, some of us in the room still struggle with that. And you know, surely I got to do something. Surely I have to earn something from God because you don't get anything for free, right? Isn't that what we've been taught? That's not what the Bible teaches. You don't bring. Anything of value to the salvation process. And that's what Luther's beginning to understand and beginning. And all he's trying to do is, guys, let's talk about this because what the Bible says doesn't gel with what you say. And that's why he would say, I don't care what the Pope says. He doesn't agree with Scripture. And he's a man. He's not God. God hasn't resigned his role and given it to the Pope. He's still on his throne, he's still in charge. And so these debates start taking place, and the next one takes place in September of the same year, and it's the Augsburg debate. And he's accused of denying the treasury of merit. Remember the treasury of merit? you got all these saints who did all these good deeds. They went to heaven. They had a lot of good deeds left over that went into this treasury that the Pope controls. Mary got assumed into heaven. She didn't die. She had a lot of good deeds left over. They went into the treasury of merit. Jesus didn't need any of his good deeds because he's the son of God. So all of his good deeds went into the treasury of merit. Who controls the treasury of merit? The Pope. And what did he do with the treasury of merit? He sold them. You could buy merits to get you out of purgatory or a dead loved one out of purgatory. And so he denies the treasury of merit. It doesn't exist. There is no treasury of merit. It's not in the Bible. Where did it come from? It's traditions of men. He starts teaching the sufficiency of faith, that it's faith alone, one of the five solas. It's by faith and nothing else. It's not by your work. It's by faith in the work of Christ, what he's done on your behalf. Then he denies that the pope had authority to, to dispense indulgences. He starts really, at the more he starts studying, his 95 thesis is like the starting point. And then he starts thinking further into it. I don't even know if I even believe in indulgences now. And he's already, by this point, September of 1518, he's already questioning that the Pope has authority to dispense these things. You don't have the right to give grace. You don't have the right to give anything to anybody It comes from God, not you. You don't have that authority. Well, a little bit later on in the year, 1519 July, the Lipsy debate. This takes place between Luther and the Dominicans. Who's the head Dominican? Tetzel. We already know Tetzel can't stand him. Well, a lot of other Dominicans can't stand him. Luther's what? He's an Augustinian. He's of a different order. The Dominicans and the Augustinians can't stand one another, so they have this debate. And Johann Eck represents the Dominicans, and he challenges Luther on the authority of the church over Scripture. And he begins to say, no, 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 the church has authority over the scripture. Now, one of the things that you'll hear um, if you read anything or you study is that they would say, we have authority over the scripture because we're the ones who decided what the scripture was. In other words, the canon. That's a misnomer because by the time that took place, the church, the body of Christ from the day of Pentecost forward had already been deciding what books were going to be included in the canon. How did they do that? By using them and rejecting others. And so by the time of the third century, as early really as the second century, the Bible was already pretty much set in stone in terms of which books were going to be used and which books were going to be thrown out as non-canonical. They weren't going to be included. And they had a a reason for that. They had to be written by an apostle. They had to be written by a witness who witnessed and talked to the apostles. Somebody like Luke, who was an apostle, but he spent time with the apostles. And so there were certain books that were just cast aside. Those are not part of the Bible. But the church, the Catholic church would say, we're the ones that, hey, we put it together. So we have authority over it. They also included all the apocryphal books, and we don't include those. We don't have those in our Bible because the early church fathers didn't have them in their Bible. Now, they they read some of them, but they didn't consider them Scripture. They saw them as valuable because they had writings in them and thoughts in them. They gave insights, but they were not seen as Scripture. And then Luther, at this debate, questions the Pope's infallibility. Now, you can imagine how that went over. He's not infallible. He makes mistakes. What did we read earlier? No, he doesn't. He never makes mistakes. Everything he does is right and true. Everything he says. And he begins to change his his thinking about the Pope. Now, again, he's a monk. He's a good Catholic. He respects the church. He's just simply trying to change the church. And early on in this process, he actually wrote a letter to Pope Leo saying, I respect you. I love you. I know you're not the problem. It's all those idiots around you. You're you're being deceived by all these people like Tetzel and others. It's not you. Well, by this time, he's beginning to change his tune. And he begins to refer to the papacy as the Antichrist. Now, what a way to win a friend, right? You're the Antichrist. Never call somebody the Antichrist, okay? Um, Especially a friend. Here's what um, he says. I do not know whether the Pope is Antichrist himself. Now, I don't, you could take this as a compliment, but I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know that he's actually the Antichrist or his apostle. So wretchedly in his decrees does he corrupt and crucify Christ. That is the truth. So he's beginning to get a little bit more um, bombastic, a little bit more in your face that I'm not sure he's the Antichrist per se, but he's he's doing damage to the truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is basically what he's talking about. He goes on, he says, a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. If I've got a a simple layman who's got this book and quotes from it, I'll believe him before I believe the pope who's not using it at all, is his premise. As for the Pope's Decretal on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. For the sake of Scripture, we should reject Pope and councils. Man, he, you know, it's just getting better. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of healing the wounds. You know, he's, he's, he's working to be, you know, uh, I want us all to get along. He's politically correct, right? No, he's not. So from 1519 to 1520, now he's already been declared a heretic, the Catholic church trying to get rid of him, everybody and their dog, including Tetzel, Eck, and all these guys are out to figure out a way, how do we get him burned at the stake? How do we get rid of this guy? He's a thorn in our side. Well, he just starts writing and he's prolific. And he writes about a number of different things. He writes about the forgiveness of sin. What, is it, what does the Bible say about forgiveness of sin? Not what the Catholic Church says. He talks about grace, the grace of God. He starts writing about the sacraments. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments. Luther started looking at it and goes, there's not seven sacraments. Where did that come from? Where did you get that? And he starts narrowing it down. There are only really two sacraments that we celebrate he starts writing about free will. What, what, what is free will? Free will is still a hot topic today, right? You start talking about the will of God and the will of man, and what always wins out? The will of man. I have free will. I get to do whatever I want. I can accept God. I can turn God away. I, don't, I, don't have, I have free will. See, we're free will creatures. We think we have free will. Nobody in this earth has free will. Here's why I know. Nobody in this earth has free will not to sin. You can't not sin matter of fact, everything you do is sin apart from Christ. So this idea of free will was a big deal in in this day and age, just like it is today. And he starts writing about it just based on what he reads in the scripture. And, you know, free will is not what it's cracked up to be. Free will is not what we think it is. And then he starts writing about the papacy. Again, not winning friends. So in 1520, Pope Leo's had enough and he condemns him as heretical. He makes it official and he writes this papal bull, and this is actually what it looked like. It's called Exerge Domine, Arise, O Lord. He's basically calling God. Now, it's interesting to me that he's, God's resigned, and he's in charge, but he's calling God to curse Luther. Get rid of this guy. We call God against him, and it's an official papal bull that gets circulated and again, Luther's given another 60 days to respond and it appear, to appear before the Pope. I want you to come to Rome and I want you to appear before me. And what Luther and all his friends know is if he shows up there, he'll be killed. He'll be burned at the stake. So, what does Luther do? He burns the papal bull, he just burns it in front of a crowd. He says, I don't agree. I don't agree. What did he already say? I don't agree that the Pope has the authority to do these things. He can't condemn me as a heretic because I'm just saying what the Bible says. And so I'm going to rely on the Bible. I'm not going to rely on the Pope. And so January 1521, he's excommunicated. Now, what is excommunication? He is not able to take communion, he's not able to go through. The mass, And so, in other words, he's not able to receive the blood and body of Christ. He's still a Catholic. He still believes that's necessary. He still wants to be part of the church. And he's basically said, no, he loses his right to practice as a monk. He loses his right to be a pastor to his people in Wittenberg. And so, he's basically kicked out of the church. And in that day and age, that was death. That was the worst thing you could do to someone is excommunicate them. You could no longer receive grace. You could no longer receive the blood and the body of Christ through the mass. So in April 1521, he appears at this thing called the Diet of Worms. Okay? Uh, somebody asked me why we didn't serve worms this morning. Um, This was actually a city. A diet was they would call all the electors, all of the um, legislature to a city, and they had these throughout the year. And Charles, who's the Roman Empire, calls this thing, and it's their Reichstag. It's their Senate, basically. And they come together, and he's commanded to come and meet before this legislative body to defend himself. He doesn't have to go to Rome, but he does have to go to Worms. And he's, he's supposed to defend his writings. Now, this is, the Diet of Worms is one of the more significant events in the, the life of Luther. And I love these paintings, how, how they, they're so dramatic. Uh, so you got the Catholics on one side, and here's Luther on the other side, and they're all pointing at him. It really does illustrate how things were going for him. It's not going well. And so he's expected to recant. Okay? If you'll just recant, just say, I was wrong. Everything I wrote is wrong. I I was an idiot. If he'll recant, everything will go back to normal. He's already been excommunicated. It's the only way he'll get restored to the church, and he's facing death as a heretic. Either you recant or you die. What would you do? Well, I know what you'd do. you do what i do. I'd recant. At least I think I would. Because this is a lot of pressure. He did not have a whole lot of friends at this point, and he's pretty much alone. And... He has his writings compared to John Huss. John Huss was a heretic who was burned at the stake. He was an early reformer. He actually came before Martin Luther. And so they're basically looking at all his writings, and they say, you're a heretic just like John Huss. So you deserve the same thing he deserves. And at first, Luther goes, no, 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 I'm not like John Huss. And then he starts reading some of John Huss' works, and he goes, I am like John Huss. I agree with John Huss. He shouldn't have been burned at the stake. He was right. And, and he, this guy is growing by leaps and bounds in a very fast, at a very fast clip because he's in the Word and he's studying and he's got all this pressure on him. And I love what he says. He goes, this shall be my recantation at Worms. Previously I said the Pope is the vicar of Christ. I recant. Now I say the Pope is the adversary of Christ and the apostle of the devil. Uh, you got to love this guy, right? He, you know, he's got a lot of issues and we'll deal with those later, but he, he was not weak-kneed. I mean, he, he was willing to say what he felt. He goes on, and this is one of the famous quotes from the Diet of Worms when they basically said, here are your books, recant. They gave him 24 hours to think about it. He comes back and he says, Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of what the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it's well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God, the scriptures. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. That was his Those were his last words really at this Diet of Worms, and everybody's hacked. They didn't get what they wanted. He didn't recant. He didn't say, I'm sorry. He didn't repent. He basically said, I stand by everything I wrote because I feel like it's based on the Scriptures. And my point this morning is for you and I to understand that your life has got to be based on the Scriptures. It can't be based on, well, I heard Ted say, I heard Ken say, Uh, I read an article, if that article or that person, that individual does not base his words on scripture, you need to distance. You need to walk away from that. And I think I said it last week, if this church ever stops preaching the word of God, you need to walk away. No, you need to run away because that's the only thing that gives us authority to stand up on a Sunday or stand up on a Thursday and say what we're saying is it's got to be based on the scripture or it has no authority. I don't have any authority. The pope has no authority if he's not going to base it on scripture. I can't make stuff up and go thus saith the lord if it's not in this book. And that was Luther's whole point, which brings us to this issue of sola scriptura, one of the five solas of the reformation. And Ted's going to do a whole sermon on this, but I just want to kind of touch on it because it's so important. And the reason I'm starting with this particular one is because the Reformation, everything we're going to talk about, salvation, sanctification, justification, grace alone and Christ alone is based on what? This. And you got to start with the scriptures. Otherwise, you have no foundation. And that's what Luther understood is that it's got to go back to the scriptures. And he, just like I read earlier, when he went into that university in that little library and he found this rare book called a Bible and he began to read it and it was stuff he'd never been taught, he, he began to see that this is an incredible resource. This is an incredible book given to us by God. And so here's what he says. What good fortune can we expect if we act so perversely and in this way put the Bible, the Holy Word of God, so far to the rear? Moreover, the Pope commands with many severe words that his laws are to be read and used in the schools and the courts, but little is said of the gospel. See, in that day and age, everything was Catholic. The churches were Catholic. The schools were Catholic. The universities were Catholic. Everything was under the control of the church. And so when you went to university, you were given a Catholic education and you were read the writings of Catholic scholars. You spent very little time in the scriptures. Remember, he was in the university when he went into that library and discovered the Bible. He wasn't being taught the Bible in his classes. As a matter of fact, they would read the writings of ancient writers about the Bible, but they would never read the Bible. And they would only read portions of the Bible. Well, that'll get you into trouble. If if you're a guy that goes, well, I love the New Testament, but I can't stand the Old Testament, you're going to get into trouble because you're going to misinterpret the New Testament because it goes with the Old Testament. That's like if I gave you a novel and said, man, it's a great novel. Read it. And I only gave you the second half you'd never understand, you'd know the ending, but you wouldn't understand the beginning. And so the church was guilty of not really teaching the, the entirety of Scripture. And it's in the schools. And, and Martin Luther was very adamant that we've got to start teaching the gospel, the Bible, in the schools. He goes on, Where the Holy Scriptures do not rule, there I advise no one to send his son. So again, everything's Christian. Everything's Christian. You, you send your kid to a good Catholic school, a good uh, Catholic university. If they don't teach the scriptures, he says, don't send your son there. Don't send your daughter there. You know what? That applies even today. But here's the sad thing. You can send your kid to a great Christian school, and they'll never hear the Bible. I, I've told the story before. Uh, I, I went to Baylor. Um, I got kicked out of Baylor, but I went to Baylor. Uh, I was going to be... Um, a religion major. I was a religion major. It only lasted about a year um, because I wasn't very religious. But I remember the first Old Testament class I went to that was taught by the head of the Old Testament department for Baylor, a good Baptist school. And I remember he stood up in the first day of the first class and he held up his Bible and he goes, I know some of you come from good Christian homes. I know many of you grew up in the Baptist church, and I know many of you have strong feelings about the Bible. Here's my feelings about the Bible. I don't believe it's the Word of God. I don't believe in the, the New Testament miracles. I don't believe in a literal creation. I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe. And, and I remember I was sitting in the room, and I was just like, I was dumbstruck. i like, what do you believe? You're an Old Testament professor. He didn't, I don't think the guy was a believer at all. Now, he knew more about the Bible than I did, but he didn't know the God of the Bible. And so, Luther's saying, everyone not unceasingly busy with the Word of God must become corrupt. It's the inevitable outcome. That's why the people who are in the universities and who are trained there are the kind of people they are. For this no one is to blame with the training of the youth. For the universities ought to turn out only men who are experts in the Holy Scriptures who can become bishops and priests and leaders in the fight against heretics, the devil, and all the world. But where do you find this true? I greatly fear that the universities are wide gates of hell if they do not diligently teach the Holy Scriptures and impress them on the youth. So Luther's concerned. He's concerned about society. He's concerned about the schools and what they're teaching their young people. And he went to university. He was going to be a lawyer. Then he ends up a monk. He goes and he gets training, university training, um, higher education training to be a scholar. He's a teacher of the Bible to other students. And yet he realizes that what we're teaching is not the scriptures. And he's concerned. And he begins to take this radical departure from the Roman Catholic Church. Radical. Based on what? Based on this book. There weren't a whole lot of other people walking around saying the things he was saying, so most most of what he got, he got out of reading the Bible. And he began to read the Bible, put it up against what the Roman church said, and he began to see it's not the same thing. It's not gelling. He believed only Scripture is the inerrant authority. This is so important, guys. He would say, while popes and councils err, the Scriptures do not err. Now, if you don't believe that this morning, if you think this book's full of uh, contradictions and errors and falsehoods, and it's just an old book and an ancient book, and it's great, and it's got some wonderful truths, but it's, it's no different than any other book, you miss the whole point. You really don't have anything to stand on. Even your belief in Jesus Christ is kind of wonky because without this, it doesn't mean anything. How do we know Jesus Christ raised from the dead? By what we read in this book. Anybody talk to one of the people who saw him rise from the dead? No. How do we know? Because their testimonies are in this book. That's how we know. We know it based on Scripture. And he firmly believed that the Scripture was inerrant. It was without fault. Rome taught that the Scripture and tradition were inerrant authorities. Now, they believed the Bible was inerrant. They just believed that so was their traditions. If the Pope said it, it's just as true, just as valid as anything in Scripture. Priarius was a a gentleman who was also a Catholic who stood against uh, Luther, and he said this, he who does not accept the doctrine of the church of Rome and pontiff of Rome as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures, too, draw their strength and authority is a heretic. What's this guy saying? If you don't believe in the traditions, the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, even if they don't come from Scripture... You're a heretic. If you don't believe that the scriptures come under the authority of the Roman Catholic pontiff, you're a heretic. That's what the Roman Catholic Church taught. And so Luther's beginning to say, I don't agree with that. I don't think it's true. And here's what's really interesting papal infallibility, the fact that the Pope can speak infallibly, didn't come about until the First Vatican Council in 1870. It it became doctrine at that point in time. Now they believed it, but they made it official. That when he spoke ex cathedra, from his seat in the basilica, anything out of his mouth was infallible. Okay? That's what they believed. And they made it official in 1870. Pope Gregory said this. The Roman church had never erred nor ever by the witness of scripture shall err to all eternity. And when he says the Roman church, what's he talking about? The magisterium, the popes, the bishops, but mainly the pope. Anything the pope says is without error. He never errs. Pope Innocent said, the pope was the mediator between God and man having superior authority even over the emperor. See, it was all about authority. It was all about power. It was all about control. Even control over the scriptures. Pope Boniface, we declare, state, define, and pronounce that it's altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. You cannot be saved without the pope. Now, what's wrong with that? It's not biblical. Even if you say the popes descended from Peter, which is what they believe, Peter would never have said, You can't be saved but by me. You, you can't be saved but through me. It, it, I'm reading through 1 Corinthians right now, and and the Corinthians were in a battle over well, I was saved by Paul, and I was saved by Peter, and I was saved by Apollos. And Paul goes, You weren't saved by any of us. You were saved by Jesus Christ through the power of God and the Holy Spirit. So, this idea that, that the Pope has all this authority, Luther's really beginning to struggle with it. And he says, Scripture alone is the true Lord and Master of all writings and doctrines on earth. If it's not granted, what is scripture good for? Great question. If scripture is not our final authority, what, why do we bother? Why do we bother? The more we reject it, the more we become satisfied with men's books and human teachers. One of the things I want to encourage you guys is you, as you grow in your faith, um, I love to read commentaries. I love to read books by uh, other scholars and writers, and I try to read diversely. I, I try to read people I don't agree with because it makes me think. But guys, Don't replace the Bible with those things. You know, when you study, don't don't get out three commentaries on Romans and read the commentaries before you read the passage in Romans, which is what most of us do. God, I don't understand that. I'm going to see what everybody else says. Read it, wrestle with it, ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, then go to the commentaries. But see, what we do is we go to the commentaries, and so we base our beliefs on somebody's opinion that may or may not gel with scripture because you can read three different commentaries and get three different opinions. Always go back to the scriptures. John Calvin, and we'll talk more about him as we move along, but he said, I approve only of those human institutions which are founded upon the authority of God and derived from scripture. And that should be true of every guy in this room. What do you base your trust in? It shouldn't be the Roman pontiff. At least that's what Martin Luther believed. And let's fast forward. 1994, Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. The church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. What does that mean? They don't go to this book to get all truth. They get it directly from God. They get direct revelation. Both Scripture and tradition, which is what it's talking about, God telling the apostles all the way from Peter to the current Pope, their apostles, their descendants of Peter, they get this revelation from God, and it must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and honor to the Scriptures. The task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been trusted, entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, the bishops and the Pope. So once again, what's the issue Here's Martin Luther, good Catholic, reading his Bible, beginning to see problems. And he sees that what the church is teaching and what the Bible is teaching don't gel. And he's going to side with the Bible. That was dangerous in that day and age. Tetzel will say this. He wrote a rebuttal against Martin Luther. And he says, For God granted the fullness of his power to St. Peter, Peter the Apostle, and to every legitimately elected pope who reigns over the Holy Church in such manner that the pope has the power to do all things necessary in the church that are for the Holy Church and for the salvation of humankind. Once again, it's really subtle, but what's he saying? The pope is in charge of everybody's salvation. That's why the pope controls the treasury of merit. That's why the pope controls indulgences. That's why you have to go to the pope to get, you know, Absolution through the priest. The priest gets his power from the Pope. It all comes from the Pope. And Martin Luther is saying, no, it comes from Scripture. And then we see in these doctrinal decrees of the Second Vatican Council. And I'm, guys, I'm going through this, and I know it's a lot of information, but you need to understand how we got to where we are here and how we got to where we are today. Hence, there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition, the the Ideas of the Pope and sacred scripture. For both of them flowing from the same divine wellspring in a certain way merge into a unity and tend toward the same end. For sacred scripture is the word of God inasmuch as it is consigned to writing. In other words, written down. Under the inspiration of the divine spirit. While sacred tradition takes the word of God entrusted by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit to the apostles. In other words, God speaks directly to the Pope. And it's just as valid as what's written in the Bible. And if what the Pope says, ex cathedra, from his throne, disagrees with Scripture, which one wins? The Pope. This is the decretals of the church from the 1960s. It's still true today. It's full purity, so that led by the light of the spirit of truth, they may, in proclaiming it, preserve this word of God, faithfully explain it and make it more widely known. Consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws their certainty about everything which has been revealed. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. Now, again, what's the issue? Sacred scripture is the writings, this book, plus the Apocrypha, according to the Catholic Church. Sacred tradition is God speaking to the Pope and him declaring, making decretals from his throne that become accepted as truth, as from God. He has direct access to God. And those writings, those decretals become on an equal level and in many cases override Scripture if they disagree with Scripture. See, this is the state of affairs when Luther's going through this. And so it begs the question well, we're 500 years later, who cares? What's the importance of this for me today? Here's here's why it's important. Here's what it means for you and I. Scripture alone is your final authority. It's your final authority. It has to be your final authority. It can't be what I say, what Ted says. It doesn't mean it's your only authority. It's okay to listen to Ted, listen to me, go to a commentary, but you've always got to go back to the source. It's your final authority, it's your sufficient authority. And here's what the word sufficient means it means it's sufficient for all of life, for faith and practice. Living your life, making decisions, you can trust this book. Now, it's not going to tell you how to invest your money. It's not going to tell you uh, where to buy a house and what neighborhood and who to marry. That's not how it's designed. It will give you wisdom and insight to live godly and to make wise decisions. And we see in the Belgian Confession, by 1561, they start putting these thoughts in writing. We believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whosoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. You can go to the scriptures. For salvation, for life. The Westminster Confession, 1646, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture (coughs) or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit from God to the Pope or traditions of men. So once again, you see this transition taking place. How did we get to where we are when we say the Bible is inerrant, the Bible is trustworthy? Because of the Reformation, because of men like Luther. And we see as the centuries start going by, they start nailing this stuff down. But again, what does the church of Rome say? 1994. It is in the church In communion with all the baptized that the Christian fulfills his vocation. From the church he receives the word of God containing the teachings of the law of Christ. From the church he receives the grace of the sacraments that sustains him on the way. From the church he learns the example of holiness and recognizes his model and source in all holy Virgin Mary. He discerns it in the authentic witness of those who live it. He discovers it in the spiritual tradition and long history of the saints who have gone before him. From the church, from the church, from the church. I love this church. Been here 35 years. But this church is not what I base my faith on. I base my faith on the Word of God as it tells me about the Son of God, the Spirit of God, and God the Father, not the church. And as long as this church continues to preach this book, I will come to this church. If this church ever stops preaching this book and ever veers from the gospel, I will vacate the premises. Now, I'll go fighting and I'll write emails and I'll get in people's grills and I'll try to save it just like Martin Luther. But eventually if I feel like I can't make a difference, I'll leave. And I'll go where I feel like I can worship. Read the scriptures within the living tradition of the whole church, the Roman Catholic Catechism says. And again, I'm not going to read this whole thing. It's in your notes, but they, they keep going back to it. It's all about the church. It's all about the Pope. Scripture alone, because it's God-inspired word, is our inerrant authority. You can trust it you can trust it. Does it mean it's easy to understand? No, not, not in the least. But God is its author, not men. It wasn't written by men. They, they, yes, they were the tools in God's hands, but God inspired them. It's God breathed. And it is authoritative for my life and for your life. It's divinely inspired. And by 1646, they put that in writing. Again, this is all in your notes, guys. And John Calvin will say the difference between us and the papists, the Catholics, is that they believe that the church cannot be the pillar of the truth unless she presides over the Word of God. We, on the other hand, assert that it's because she reverently subjects herself to the Word of God that the truth is preserved by her and passed on to others by her hands. See, when we subject ourselves as a fellowship to the Word of God, then we get used by God. I'm going to blow past this. I love this passage. You're familiar with it. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what this is all about. It's scripture. It's scripture alone. And the church, the Roman Catholic church is no longer and never really was the sole authority when it comes to the word, the word of God. We have the word of God. So here's your time. I know I ate a bunch of your time up. I apologize, but here's your discussion. Discuss how much we tend to believe as Christians can be based more on the teachings of men than the Word of God. Why is this dangerous? We do it all the time. Well, I read this article by so and so. I I read a book by so and so. Is it based on Scripture? Do you validate it? We live in a day when truth is neither, either non-existent or relative. How does the Scriptures claim to be the inerrant Word of God throw a wrench into that mindset? All truth is relative. You got your truth, I got my truth. Where do we get truth from? Well, as Christians, we believe it comes out of this book. The reformers were students of the scriptures. How did their knowledge of God's word equip them to speak truth? And what can we learn from their example today? How do you speak truth into the world today? Every guy in this room's got an opinion. Most of them are wrong, unless they're based on what? The scripture. Most people don't want to know what you think. And most people don't know, want to know what the Bible thinks. But if you're going to waste your time giving an opinion, which opinion should you give? Yours or God's? Give God's, the Bible says. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these guys. Thank you for their patience. I pray that you would take the time that they have left. Help them have discussion. Help them have open communication. Father, this is a process, and I feel like we're going through a process just like Martin Luther, and we're discovering some things we didn't know, and we're realizing that we've veered away from the truth of God, and sometimes we don't know what the truth of God is, and we don't give the Scriptures the validity and the importance in our lives that they should have. And I pray that you would bring us back to the Scriptures, that we would make it the foundation for our lives, not going to church, not listening to sermons, not coming to Bible studies, but becoming men of the Word. And so, Father, bless this time together, bless the rest of their week, and I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.